I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week, where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM, and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from 30 Tigers, presenting Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and Maine native Patty Griffin, Live at the Collins Center for the Arts in Orono, October 3rd. Tickets at CollinsCenterForTheArts.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. A Healthy Options Special with your host Cynthia Swan is up next. Good morning. Cynthia Swan here with a Healthy Options special, and our topic today is opiate dependence. My guest, Kip Young, is a licensed drug and alcohol counselor who began working in the field of chemical dependency in 1990. He's worked predominantly in the Ellsworth and Bangor area. In 1995, Kip created and continues to maintain a 10-week prevention program that currently exists in approximately 16 elementary schools in Hancock and Washington counties. His specialty is harm reduction counseling, which celebrates any move toward change. He's enjoyed success in working with chronic alcohol and opiate dependence and addiction. He also enjoys helping the family members of substance users. And recently, he's created an educational and support group that starts this October with his partner, unofficial partner, Irene Laney. His website is AtlanticSAC.net. His website is AtlanticSAC.net at oops that was his website his email is atlantic sac at yahoo.com and i'm going to give you an office phone number should you wish to reach him 207-664-1500 and the other side of his life is he plays in a band with his daughter called m and company and they're scheduled to play at the grand in ellsworth in february on the 20th and two other bands he plays with the blazing apostles and Joe Mama and the Swamp Walkers. He plays lead guitar, and he's been playing for about 45 years. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So, so great to be here. Well, let's dive right into this because this has been in the news a lot. We met, I think, in the late winter or early spring. Yes. And we had talked about doing this show, and I'm glad to have you on to um, talk about the opiate dependence problem that we have in the state of Maine. But let's start with this. What's a substance? You, you said to me that substance abuse is on a continuum. It's not black and white. So what, what does that mean when you talk about dependency, addiction? Well, substance use does happen on a continuum. And even someone who, say, drinks a beer once, once a month, that is substance use. It's very low-risk substance use. On the other hand, you might have someone who drinks a fifth of Jack Daniels a day. 
that's also substance use on on the more uh, difficult to treat side. Um, basically, it's from mild, moderate to severe. We throw around this word addiction a lot, and. The term is overused. I hear the term addiction in songs. I'm addicted to you. I'm addicted to chocolate. If addicted one, to love. Addicted yeah. to coffee. And, and, you know, if you were addicted to coffee, that would look a whole lot different than what someone thinks. Um, just because a person is dependent on a medication does not mean they're addicted to the medication. And I think uh, treatment centers uh, for many years have overused the term where you have someone who's they're dependent on a drug but they've been able to hold on to their principles, their values, their morals. They're not stealing their grandmother's jewelry to sell to get more drugs. They're still working. They're still working. They're still taking care of their family. But if they don't have this drug, there is a reaction. Uh, for instance, I take Tylenol PM probably four nights a week. Now, that would mean that I am probably dependent on Tylenol PM to get a good night's sleep. If I don't take it, I'm probably not going to sleep well doesn't mean I'm going to be out robbing pharmacies to get more Tylenol PM. And so when I look at addiction, for me, it's when a person's drug-seeking behavior violates their own principles, values, and morals on a continual basis. That would be addiction. So, so I believe the term is far overused, and people are being labeled with that term, and they really don't deserve that. So how, how would you label them? If they're, if, it, if they're in a situation where it's not um, affecting their principles and their morals, would you just call them a user? I would say you're, you're dependent on opiates. You're just a person who's Oh, you're dependent. dependent. Yeah, a person who's dependent on opiates. But you're not addicted. And then, okay, so you, you said you don't, you don't like the popular labels like addict, uh, alcoholic, resistance, leverage, enabling, Correct. to name a few what do the why not well first i want to do a, a shout out to to the, the good folks in aa and na um part of their program is that they identify themselves when they introduce themselves at a meeting if we go around a circle hi i'm kip i'm an alcoholic and this hi kip and that's a very important part of of that meeting and the thing about that is people choose to put that label on themselves and they use that label as a way to remind them that they have a very important mission to do, and that's to not drink today. And so I believe if you're accepting that label of your own free will, mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. And if someone comes in my office, hey, Kip, I want to go to AA, I want to call myself an alcoholic and get a sponsor, I'm there with them, and I totally support that. However, in society, outside of an AA meeting or outside of an NA meeting, it's a very different thing. The best way I can describe this is I do this with sixth graders, and I have them close their eyes and I tell a story. And the story is that they're, they open their eyes in the classroom, they're by themselves, they walk outside on the playground, they get on the swing, they swing back and forth, they get on uh, the slide, they slide down the slide, and when they get to the sand at the bottom, they see standing in front of them is an alcoholic. And I ask them, look at this person, look at their face, look at their clothes, how do you feel when you see them? Then I say, you, you, you know, the alcoholic walks away, you come back into the school, sit down, open your eyes. And when they open their eyes, I'll ask them, how many people were able to see someone standing at the bottom of the slide? Every kid puts their hand up. Wow. Then I say, how many people saw a woman? All the hands go down, except for maybe one or two. So right there, I can see that um, from, from the time people are kids, they identify alcoholism with men and not women. 
and women make up a good half of the people who have alcohol use disorders. Is that true statistically? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the other piece is I say, okay, now first I want you to describe me their face. And the kids say, oh, they had bloodshot eyes with baggy skin, a scruffy beard. They had a greasy hat with blood stains on it. They got a ripped flannel coat. They're, they're, you know, they describe a, a skid row bum. And so when I say alcoholic, society sees a skid row bum. And so as long as I don't look like that guy, well, I must not have an alcohol problem. And so I, I think labels are misleading. They're also very shaming, and they come with an incredible amount of stigma. I would rather look at my client and call them Cindy or Bob or Jim. I don't think the labels are helpful. I think if you want the label and you think this is a helpful label for me, then, then bless you, take that label and, and do great things with it. But I think from a clinical point of view, a professional point of view, for me to label people um, can potentially be destructive. Here's, here's a label, enabling. Let's say that you have a woman who is uh, desperately trying to save her 17-year-old son. He has an alcohol problem, an opiate problem, and she's going to the ends of the earth to try to save this kid. She's desperate to save them. She goes to a counselor, and the counselor says, well, you've been enabling them. I have a hard time with shaming somebody because they're dedicated to saving somebody's life. Now, I don't mind saying, you know, maybe the fact that you're giving them money isn't helpful. Maybe there's a better thing we can do. Let's take a look at that and explore that option. But I think just to throw a label on it always has the potential to shame people. And people come into my office with enough shame without me um, making that burden heavier. Okay. Um, do in a soap note, do you have to use it for professional notes? Do you have to use those labels? No, I don't. I, I will say that, um, you know, this, <clears throat> for instance, uh, if I was doing a note with this particular woman, I would say that she's gone through extraordinary means to help her son. These means have not been helpful, and we are going to explore other means that may be more helpful to, to reduce her stress level and to maybe be more helpful for her son. Yeah, under, understandable. Um, the, the scope of this problem is so large um talk about it i mean well yeah. what is the scope of it how long has it been with us and and um and and while you're at it how did it how did this problem start well you know it's interesting i i was working in pennsylvania and uh, i worked at a, a major facility down there and there was the detox just down the hill from the main building and I worked with teenagers. And so when a teenager would, would show up for treatment, they'd spend a few days in detox, and um, they'd identify who the counselor was going to be. And if it was going to be me, I'd grab a couple kids from the center. We'd go down, introduce ourselves, say, hey, look, when you come up to the rehab, here's some friendly faces to try to take some of the fear away. Well, there was this young woman. She was 17, and they identified her as a heroin addict, and she was going to be my my uh, my uh, client. So I went down the hill, and I met her. And about four days later, someone snuck some heroin into her that she used. And it seemed like every three or four days, someone sn would sneak her in the drug. She never did make it to the treatment center. They, they discharged her from treatment, so I never got to meet her. So that was my first um, uh, person I was uh, going to treat for heroin. And then in the late 90s, I was home watching TV, and the sheriff of Machias got on TV, and he said, I need help. My, my jail cells are full crimes going through the roof, and it's all about this drug, OxyContin. And I'm like, what is that? Uh, I, I was calling it OxyContin, like most people did. Yeah. And um, it was actually OxyContin. And um, come to find out, uh, the Purdue Pharma Company had created this new painkiller, and they were telling physicians all over the country that um, the longer it takes a person 
uh, the more pain someone's in when, when they've been hurt or they've had surgery, the longer it takes them to uh, recover. Mm-hmm. So we need to be giving them good pain medications so they can uh, they, they can recover quicker. And they said that America was 60% underprescribed for pain medication. We have this new drug, OxyContin, very few side effects. Well, I guess we know the story about that one now. And so doctors started prescribing that. And all of a sudden, uh, at the treatment center I was working at in Ellsworth, we started getting phone calls from people saying, hey, i got a problem with this drug. They'd come into our group. And most of the people in our group were, had alcohol dependence or, or maybe a mixture of cocaine and alcohol and other things. And the people with opiate dependence would come in and they'd last about three days and disappear. From the group? Yeah, we couldn't keep them in treatment. Uh, no matter what we did, we couldn't. Every once in a while, one would stick, but most of them wouldn't make it. Then suddenly we started having some real overdose tragedies in, in our community. And we all learned about Suboxone and Suboxone is a drug that is used to control opiate dependence by taking away the withdrawal syndrome, also taking away the um, overdose potential. And so a person can stabilize very quickly. How do you spell that? Suboxone, S-U-B-O-X-O-N-E. And now they have a new one called Bunivale. Bunivale is also very similar to Suboxone. But a lot of people look at this as it's just replacing one addiction with another and this is something I spend a lot of time talking about. Well, before you jump to that, I want so so you're saying that this epidemic started not only in Maine, are you saying throughout the United States because of the uh, overprescribed painkiller? Yeah, OxyContin. It was first identified by the FDA that Washington County, Maine, had a problem with this drug OxyContin. Mm-hmm. Quickly spread um, into Hancock County. And uh, what they realized when they did their research, the only difference between OxyContin and heroin is one molecule. That's it. And I'll tell you something. My, my clients who have been dependent on heroin prefer OxyContin over heroin because it's pharmaceutically pure. It's the same high every time. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a more pure form of the drug. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a Healthy Options special. My name is Cynthia Swan. The title of this show is Opiate Dependence, and I have Kip Young, licensed drug and alcohol counselor um, from Washington County. Right? Are you from I, Washington no, I'm County? From, or you're I'm from, close. I'm you're from, close. I'm from Hancock you're County. You're from Hancock County. Right on the line. <laughs> and we're, and we're, um, I want to just give Kip's um, contact information, Atlantic SAC, S-A-C, at yahoo.com is his email, and his website is atlanticsac.net, and a phone number, 207-664-1500. And you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU 99.9 FM in Bangor, 89.9 FM Blue Hill, and streaming, weru.org. So you're... so. This started from overprescribing this particular pain medication. It's already been identified. Um, the, you're saying that the drug company was telling the physician this is the best. Um, this is best practice. Yes, and that that we've been we've been underprescribing about and 60%. That 60% underprescribing. Now we have this issue out throughout the country. I think we're one of the highest states, are. aren't we, with this uh, percentage-wise with uh, yep. this opiate um, opiate dependence problem? Per capita, Maine is number one. Uh, one? Was- yeah, number one. Washington County is county number one, and I believe Hancock is number two. And so with the, uh, with the introduction of OxyContin into 
a county where people are working with their hands, working with their backs, you know, that they're, they're fishing, they're blueberry raking, they're, they're, potatoes. they're, they're warming potatoes, all these things, you have a situation where people are getting hurt. Right. And so people are getting prescriptions for OxyContin. And once they realized something was going on, they started making tamper-proof prescriptions. Doctors, doctors responded very quickly. I mean, the medical community really did once they realized this was a big problem. And as soon as the, uh, the medical community and the DEA were able to reduce the amount of OxyContin on the street, then Percocet became king. And Percocet was everywhere. Yes, Percocet, the other... Yes. The other drug, yes, for pain. And and the thing about the opiates, they're all the same. You put them in a bag and shake them up, they're, they're pretty much the same. If you take enough Percocet, it's as strong as OxyContin. The problems are the same. The addiction problems are the same. And um, so this is how the explosion started. So now as the DEA started to get really good at knocking down the Percocet, heroin came in with, with open arms. So, so, so... So they're how, how they're prescribed these pain meds because what what's the scenario? Take us through those of us who don't understand. So they're hurt, they get the pain med. Mm-hmm. The pain med makes them feel better. They can go back to work, right? Right. So they're working and they're not feeling that pain, and then they're on it for a certain amount of time, and, yeah. and it's the time. It's the time that, and it's the person's resiliency to it. It's it's kind of like this. If I have a five gallon bucket that's empty. And I start dripping a, a drip of water into that bucket every two seconds. It is a mathematical certainty that that bucket will fill up and overflow. If you put a human being on an opiate medication and you leave them on there too long, it's an absolute pharmaceutical certainty that they will become dependent. Now, whether they become addicted is a different story. Uh, but the, the dependency will happen. I, I About 20%... Um, I heard this on uh, another radio station a few days ago um, by a professional. I'm seeing the same thing, and so are my colleagues. About 20% of the people who come to my office with opiate dependence got that way simply by following the directions of their doctor. Mm. And then all of a sudden, they call in for their prescription one day. The doctor is saying, oh, wait a minute, you're not in pain anymore. We think you're drug-seeking. The doctor says, I'm no longer going to prescribe for you. Okay, so, all right, so then that's the scenario. Yeah. The doctor realizes, oh, my God, they're, um, they're dependent, mm-hmm. and I can't write this script anymore, so the, they're cut off. That's where the intervention ends. So the intervention ends there? Yes. And then you've got a person who is opiate dependent. Yeah. And what you have to understand about opiate dependence, it is going to be served one way or the other. This is not just someone having a bad day. This isn't someone who has weak morals. This is a medical condition where opiate dependence changes the functioning of the brain. And changes their brain chemistry. Yeah, and there's this... There's Permanently? This, um, for some people, I believe so. And what it is, is opiates, they tend to drag you down. And they, they, it's a central nervous system depressant. The body does not like being out of balance. There's that word homeostasis. Right, right. And so in order to uh, create a condition where the opiates aren't in control of the brain, the brain starts producing noradrenaline. Now, noradrenaline is a great thing. If you've ever had a little brother or, or a little sister scare you, like you come down the stairs mm-hmm. and jump out, okay, that yikes feeling you get, yeah. that's noradrenaline. Now, imagine if you had someone scared you and you get that yikes feeling. Mm-hmm. And that yikes feeling doesn't go away for a month. Add, How awful. Add to that diarrhea, vomiting, excre- extreme joint pains, roving Charlie horses all over your body, 
an inability to sleep for many now look if i've had now that could cause psychosis oh absolutely if i've had a nice rejuvenating nice sleep i can handle about anything if i haven't had a good night's sleep there's very little i can difficult i i I can i can uh, deal with i like to use this scenario if anybody out there listening has ever had the uh unfortunate experience of having the flu for seven to ten days you'll know that day one Okay, you can still make it to the fridge and get some ginger ale. You might be able to get to the bathroom. Day three, not doing so good. Day five, you have totally succumbed to the influenza virus. Me, I'm on the couch. I've got a bucket next to it. I'm, I'm wrapped up in, in a quilt, and I'm praying for death. Or it's <laughs> like someone, someone come in and put me out of my misery, yeah. or please make me feel better. And if someone walked in right there on day five and said, Hey, Kip, here's a little pill. If you take this in 10 minutes you'll feel perfect. I'm taking the pill, all right, because I'm a weenie and I'm done. But I asked myself, okay, flu symptoms. Now add to that roving Charlie horses all over your body, joint aches, an inability to sleep. And that's the big one. See, if I got the flu, at least I can sleep for a while. Right. Can't sleep. My face is quivering. I have an uncontrollable urge to use an opiate drug. And how are you going to be doing on day 10? How are you doing on day 15? How are you doing on day 25? And even if you get through what's called the acute withdrawal phase, now you're looking at what's called post-acute withdrawal, which can be severe depression that can last up to 18 months, sometimes longer. So we're asking a person now, human beings are creatures that seek comfort. You know, it's, it's, it's a little chilly in here, but I really don't need a, a coat. I'm not that uncomfortable. But I'm always, if I'm, too, if I'm too hot, I take off my coat. If I'm too cold, I put it on. That's what we do. We're always seeking comfort. Right. And so when you have somebody who's going to be in distress for months, people don't do well with that. And the truth is, I don't know if people can't go with withdrawal or they won't go through withdrawal, but the truth is they don't. And we have so many people in our community right now who have a medical condition. And for me, I don't differentiate whether you became dependent because you followed the directions of your doctor or you became dependent because you were smoking opiates with your buddy behind the barn. Your brain doesn't know the difference between legal and illegal opiates. The problems are the same. The addiction problems are the same. And human beings tend to respond to that in a very typical way. In my office, I have a a wood carving a, a, a picture of one from the early 1800s from China, and it shows a man selling his wife to an opium trader. Oh. And you know what? Property has changed, certainly. You can't sell your wife anymore. You can't sell your husband anymore either. Um, but I've seen people go through extraordinary measures to get that drug because opiate dependence is going to be served by one of several ways. One, you get a bunch of your big friends and you go up to a hunting camp out in the middle of the woods and they lock you in and they give you enough food and water and don't let you leave until you're done being sick and then get you to some, some, some good counseling. Can you survive that? Yeah, opiate dependence won't kill you. It just makes you feel like you're going to die. Alcohol withdrawal will kill you. How long is that? Um, how long does that happen? How long would you have to be isolated? Well, it depends on how long I've been using and how resilient you are. Now, I have some people who come to my office and say, Kip, I don't want any assisted medication with, with, with um, you know, uh, treatment medication. I don't want Suboxone. I don't want Methadone. I want to get this done. And, and some of them are able to do that. I have others who... Would are... you say in the percentage, Kip, that um, of those people who come to you with that request... Do most, are most of them able to do it? Well, I think if you look at the statistics from the Huffington Post, um, where they look at 
people who try to beat opiates to if they're if they're really dependent and mm-hmm. have moved to a place of addiction, if they try to get clean without using any medications at all, there's a failure rate nationwide of over ninety percent. Ninety. Ninety percent. Whereas Suboxone and counseling has a failure rate of about eight percent. If you take people off of medication, Suboxone, that drug with counseling, the failure rate is only eight percent. Around eight percent nationwide, and and people get upset because, um, especially people who are more about traditional treatment. Yeah, because traditional treatment, they're going to say, look, the alcoholic, you get them off alcohol, they don't get any. Period. That's right. it. And they go through withdrawal. And so I could see people also coming forward and saying, well, look, they've been, whatever the reason, whether it's overprescribed or street drug or whatever, just take them off and let them deal with that. Yeah, yeah. let's take them off and let them deal with that. And the way they deal with that is they relapse. And they they go back and be part of the problem. You know, it's interesting. uh, France had a really, really... um, uh, just a terrible situation where they had so much heroin, heroin addiction, heroin dependence, and the government released, I don't know how many thousands of um, prescriptions of Suboxone through the medical community, and over the next three years, overdose deaths dropped 80%. 80%. And were these people able to get back to work or get back to having some kind of quality? Of- Instantly. Instantly. The thing about Suboxone... So so state the case for Suboxone, because I've read a little bit about this too. And again, I hear the critics saying you're just replacing one opiate for another. Yes. But how is this different in terms of quality of life and in terms of maybe even dollars and providing what you called, you said this is uh, best care practice? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, um, best practice. Best practice. uh, All over the world. Except in the U.S. Yes. Well, the U.S., and, and or, rightly so, we, we fell in love with AA because back in the, in the 20s, man, there, were, there was no treatment for any type of, of addiction. And, and, you know, people with alcohol dependence would come to hospitals. They were difficult to treat. They wouldn't listen to the doctors. They didn't have any money. And there was really, they, they would send them to sanatoriums or send them to your priest. And when AA was developed, suddenly people with alcohol dependence were getting better. Man, they, they, they were going to AA, they were getting sober, staying sober, and they were loving it. They, they, they were really, really enjoying life. Um, people in AA have an incredible amount of gratitude. Um, so you would call AA a successful program? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It has helped millions and millions of people. Um, it doesn't always work well with opiate dependence. Matter of fact, with just AA and opiate dependence, there's a failure rate of about 90%. 90%. Why? Why won't? It, why does it work for alcohol and not opiate dependence? Well, alcohol uh, withdrawal lasts for about, you know, three to five days, and then you're out of withdrawal. Then it's about learning how to think differently, learning how to behave differently, changing your life, you know, staying away from the places that, that are difficult for you. And, and you, you know, you have the 12 steps and a sponsor and a lot of support. But the thing about opiates is that um, withdrawal lasts for, can last for months. Months? Yeah. I mean, you, you got the probably, you know, 15 to 30 days of being just sick. Then after that, you've got all the depression that happens. And um, the 12 steps can be helpful for these people. But the problem is, is the addiction blows them out of AA and they're back using, so they never get to use the steps. Because they they're in so much physical pain, yeah. right? They need to have some kind of uh, uh, relief from that. And, and what... What's interesting is people say that Suboxone is just trading one addiction for the other. That's not true. It's the same addiction. Opiate dependence is opiate dependence, whatever you call it. The difference is 
the drugs that people abuse mostly, and yes, there are people who abuse Suboxone. I'm going to put that right out there. And some of the folks I work with is just trying to teach them not, not to misuse the drug mm-hmm. to turn into a medication. Mm-hmm. Um, Suboxone is a long-acting opiate as where um, heroin, Percocet, all these others are very short-acting opiates. Um, Suboxone is mixed. It's, it's a buprenorphine, which is What's a... What does that mean? Buprenorphine is um, it's an opiate drug. It's what's called an agonist. An agonist opiate drug is a drug that the more you take, the higher you get. And you can keep taking it until you stop breathing and die. On the other side of the spectrum, you have something called an antagonist. Now, troxone is an antagonist. What it does, it shuts the brain cells shut so no opiates can get in there. And so if you're taking naltroxone, you can get that in a shot called Vivitrol. For 30 days, if you try to get high, you can't get high, although you can overdose if you try to, to override that. Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine, which is an opiate agonist, naltroxone, which is an antagonist. You put the two together. Mm-hmm. It only opens the brain cell a little bit. It lets enough buprenorphine in there so you're, getting, you're not getting sick, but you're also not in risk of overdose. So what Suboxone does, basically, you can be sitting in your doctor's office, and you can be quivering all over. Your face can be quivering. You're having trolley horses. You're throwing up. You're having diarrhea. You're just totally in really bad shape. And the doctor gives you an 8-milligram strip of Suboxone, maybe 12 and then he starts talking to you about the weather. He starts talking to you about, you know, the football game. And in a couple minutes, if he's guessed right, this miraculous thing happens. You stop shaking. You stop throwing up. And all of a sudden, you feel normal. And here's the piece. People start using opiates either A, because they've been prescribed and they're hurt, mm-hmm. or B, because they're partying with them and they feel good. That goes away so quickly. Tolerance builds so quick. And a person finds after a very short period of time that when they're not on opiates, they feel terrible. Maybe not even realizing this is the beginning of withdrawal. It starts that I'm, I'm using drugs to get the specific effect. By the time the dependency comes, I'm using this drug not to get that effect. I'm using this drug just so I'm not sick. I use this drug so I can feel normal. So people use the opiates to go to work. They use the opiates to do whatever they need to do because without them, they can't function. Suboxone stabilizes a person immediately. They can start to work the problems of their life. They can start to be employed again. They can they can repair the damage to their family and start looking at all these problems. That Better been, than methadone? Do you, you think know, it, I mean, what's your feeling about the methadone clinics? Methadone clinics are, are, are very important. I just wish they were they were more accessible because I have some clients who Suboxone just really doesn't work for and, and they use the methadone. And what I love about my clients is that they don't believe they're getting enough counseling at the methadone clinic. And, so and they're I, given their med and sent on their way? Yeah. And they, they do have, I think, a group um, uh, that happens kind of infrequently. And it's more of a check-in. It's not a place where you can sit down with someone and really look at the issues of your life. So I, I think there's a there's a place for methadone. I just really wish they would increase the counseling um, around that because when a person comes in for treatment for opiate dependence, there's two things that needs to happen. We need to stabilize them, number one, and now we need to start looking at um, their life. Like, for instance, in, in AA, if, if you put someone who's got opiate dependence in AA without any type of medication-assisted recovery, they're probably not going to do well and they're going to fail. However, you put a person on medication-assisted treatment and send them to AA, now they can start working the steps. 
Now they can start. So what, what Suboxone will do is put an opiate-dependent person on the same playing field as an alcohol-dependent person in early recovery. They can actually start fixing their life. So they're not suffering from the physical symptoms, so they don't have that physical discomfort. Right. And then they can hit those emotional, spiritual, psychological issues. And if they're comfortable, they don't have to drug-seek anymore. They don't have to go buy heroin anymore. So if you're on Suboxone, if every person out there who needed Suboxone, now here's the thing, not everybody who's an opiate-dependent person needs Suboxone. I got some folks that are, that are, that are coming in and they're, uh, they don't want to be on medication-assisted uh, recovery. If you talk to the good folks at Open Door Recovery Center, Barbara Royal, um, they're an abstinence-based program mainly, mm-hmm. and they have people come there saying, look, I've got an opiate problem, Barbara, and I don't want medication-assisted treatment. And Barbara runs her hands again and says, okay, let's get to work. There are those people. They are the minority, though. And so if every person out there right now in the Ellsworth, Blue Hill, MDI area was able to actually have access to Suboxone, which they do not, you would see overdose deaths plummet. You would see crime plummet. Uh, You would see uh, family breakups plummeting. And you would see uh, production going up in work and we would have a we would have a section of our society right now that is barely functional become very functional in a very short period of time if you're just joining us, my name is Cynthia Swan. You're listening to a Healthy Options special, and our topic is opiate dependence. My guest, Kip Young, is a licensed drug and alcohol counselor who's been working in the field since 1990 and predominantly in the Ellsworth and Bangor area. He, he has a website, AtlanticSAC.net, uh, email, AtlanticSAC at Yahoo.com, and a phone number for his office, 207-664-1500. And also, um, uh, listeners might be interested in a group that he's going to be running on Tuesday nights in October, and this is for uh, loved ones of substance users. And then you were talking about also a, a, a group for... Yeah, I'm going to be starting a... I have some requests lately to start a group uh, for people uh, with opiate dependence. And my schedule's gotten kind of too full. And I would really love to do this group. It'll give me some room in other areas. But I've had really good success with doing group work with these folks before. Great. And you're listening to WERU, 99.9 FM in Bangor, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming WERU.org. We're going to take a brief break and then I'm going to come back and talk to Kip more about Suboxone. Welcome back. This is Cynthia Swan with my guest, Kip Young, licensed drug and alcohol counselor. We're talking about opiate dependence. We kind of um, took that break right before uh, Suboxone. Well, we were talking about Suboxone, but I want to also say you said they don't have access to Suboxone. Why don't they have access to Suboxone if it's the best practice and the preferred medication for opiate users? There's, there's a couple of things impacting that. When, when Suboxone was first introduced, I think it was introduced um, in, in, in a way that wasn't 
wasn't completely honest. I don't think they meant it to be that way. But Suboxone was going to be the answer to methadone, which was basically methadone is something that people have a very difficult time getting off from. Uh, many people who get on methadone are there for life. And they thought Suboxone was going to be an answer to that, or it would be a short-term intervention to get people off of the opiates. And what we found is that's simply not true. Uh, the people who get on Suboxone tend to have almost as much difficulty getting off of that as they do the methadone. And there's this thinking, and I, I'm really trying to change because I, I do believe that if we continue to use a template for this, that's not exactly helpful. We're not going to get good results. There's still this feeling that we got to get them off, the, get them off the Suboxone, get them on their quick thing, get them off. Yeah, of it. That there is. I think that yeah. that people want them off the drugs completely. Now, from the outside, we're looking at that. We believe that the only true recovery, the only real true success, is total abstinence. That comes from the AA and the NA model, and in those models, they work wonderfully and they do well. Um, but uh, <clears throat> when it comes to Suboxone, it's, if you look at it from the outside, yeah, we want to get these people off this drug. But if you're on the inside of that, if you're on Suboxone and suddenly you've been stabilized, you're back to work. You know, the, the, the cat's not scratching anymore. The dog's not biting you anymore. You know, you, you and your, your, your kids are doing great. You and your wife's doing it. And, and right when your life seems really good... Then they say, okay, we're taking you off this. You've been on it too long. These people go into panic. And basically, you take a stable person and you start destabilizing them. And if you take a person off Suboxone before they are ready, they are most likely going to relapse. The, uh, the stats are out there. 80% uh, of people who are taking off medication-assisted treatment before they are ready relapse um, in the first year. All right. So, Kip, what do you say to people, though, who would uh, argue this point and say, well, then they're going to be – what about those people who are going to be on Suboxone their entire life? I say, um, I, I, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek. I say, so what? The reason I say that is because – Substance use and the treatment of substance use is the only industry where we make decisions about people's medication against their will. For instance, um, if I'm a diabetic, right, and, I, and I, I, I eat poorly that week and I come in and my numbers are off, the doctor doesn't yank my insulin. Um, I believe people should be able to have that choice because here's the thing. I have had a lot of people, I've had success getting people off Suboxone. The reason I've had success with that is I've created a very gentle taper plan. I can get someone from 16 milligrams of Suboxone down to a quarter milligram every three days over a number of months, maybe even a year and a half. Getting a person off of that little piece is really, really hard. And so the best indicator, I believe, that a person's ready to get off Suboxone is they will tell you, hey, Kip, you know, I like you. I've been seeing you for a year and a half, and we got a pretty good thing going. But, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of all this counseling and, and seeing the doctor. And, and there's this kind of hostage-taking that if you are put on Suboxone, you have to be in counseling, even if there's nothing to talk about. I mean, you got someone who's been on Suboxone for, for eight months, and their life is great, you know. I mean, they still have to go see the counselor. They still have to see the counselor. So when they say, hey, man, I'm ready to get off this stuff. Can you help me? That's change talk. I listen for that. Okay, great. How do you want to do this? How do we start? I always ask them. I do, I'm not prescriptive. I don't tell people how to change. I ask them what their idea is about what's going to work. Um, but, you know, to take somebody off of Suboxone 
when they're still in poverty, still in a situation with domestic violence, um, still have don't have their driver's license back, have incredible pressure on their life, that is not the time to taper someone off Suboxone uh, because at that point, a person is most likely going to relapse. Um, it's, this isn't perfect. It's never going to be. Look, opiate dependence has been destroying people for centuries. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Chinese. Yeah, there have been wars. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the British and China, they went to war over this. Yeah. And it was amazing because uh, the, the emperor kept asking Queen Victoria to stop sending these ships to us, and she ignored them. And so what the Chinese did was they confiscated some ships. They confiscated 20,000 barrels of opium, and they detained the ship captains. Uh, the British retaliated by leveling the port city of Canton. They destroyed the city, forced mm-hmm. China to open five more ports for, for opiate trade. The emperor stood back, and he didn't know what to do. All he knew was this, that these men who should be working out in the field supporting their families were laying in bunks in opium dens. And he stood back and he didn't know what to do. All he knew was that these people could not stop using it. So he had them executed by the thousands, the users, the sellers, and the opiate trade doubled in the next 10 years. Didn't stop anything. Once opiate dependence moves into a community, it's generally there to stay because there are going to be some people who either cannot or will not go through withdrawal. And the financial incentives to make sure these people get those drugs is so high, there will always be a criminal element that's willing to wish their, to risk their freedom to get that. Um, so, so this is a problem that I think people are waiting for it to go away. And I got news for you. This is not going away. We need to deal with this. We need we to pull to our... We have to learn how to manage it like we manage uh, other health care problems like. and to provide a menu of options and that, that's one of the things I think that works in my in, in my particular practice when a person comes to me and says I want to make this change I said well look here's here's a bunch of different ways we can do that what speaks best to you we can either you know do the hunting camp thing where you get totally sober we can um, get, get you an injection of vivitrol That'll keep you from using opiates for a month. Vivitrol? Yeah, we can put you on Suboxone. We can get you on... uh, So they have more than a few options. Suboxone is not the only option. I want to open this up to callers in the last minutes that we have remaining for the show in case you have questions for Kip or comments. So feel free to call us. Our toll-free number, 1-866-625-9378. And I'll give that to you again, 666-625-WERU. And I'm speaking with Kip Young, a licensed drug and alcohol counselor since 1990, speaking about opiate dependence. Kip, what what's the role of the medical community? What's the role of us of you know, what what's the role of family members? What what are what's our role in this? How how do we help with the um help people who are opiate dependent we need to have we need to have access to treatment we need to have access to best practice um there's a couple of things happening uh, right now as far as the, the medical community look doctors are, are in the business of of you know helping with suffering healing that's what they do when a person comes to a doctor and they're in incredible pain, you know, broken legs, something like that, the doctor's going to try to ease that pain. Many times it's through opiate medication because, let's face it, there's nothing that works that well. The problem is that the dependency can happen so fast. I mean, so fast. Like within a couple of weeks? Or? Well, uh, for instance, I, I remember uh, when, I was, when I was 16 years old, I had knee surgery. And I was in the hospital. The surgery went bad. I ended up being in the hospital for over a month. And they were giving me um, injections of Demerol. And I used to hate that needle. All right, wait, I'm going to interrupt you. We have Melissa from Ellsworth. Melissa, you're on the air. 
Hello. Hello. Uh, I just had a question, um, you know, about uh, the Suboxone treatment. I'm a pharmacist, and so I see a lot of that. And I also have a lot of old friends who have struggled with addiction. And what I wonder is if Suboxone makes it more dangerous when people, if somebody does relapse. Um, you know, because the way, if somebody's on Suboxone and they relapse, the Suboxone is there as a buffer to prevent overdose um, and things like that. And then let's say somebody's off their Suboxone for a week and they use the same amount of opiate, heroin or whatever, does that then make them more susceptible to overdose? Because they're used to having this ceiling on board and then let's say they don't have the ceiling on board, are they then more susceptible to having an overdose? Kip, what's your response to that or your experience with that? So that's a great question. One of the uh, most dangerous times for a person who is uh, recovering from opiates is when they first got home from rehab or if they've been in a, in, a, in a situation where they've been off of their opiate drug, say, for a series of weeks because tolerance drops real quick. And, you know, how many times have we seen someone, uh, you know, uh, graduate some type of program, a drug court program or, or, or an IOP or, or an intensive uh, inpatient treatment center, have them graduate on a Friday and die of an overdose on Sunday because they have no tolerance. Suboxone uh, will keep the tolerance up a little bit because the buprenorphine is there. And I, I don't know um, the, the exact difference between the danger of someone overdosing who's been on Suboxone or someone who has um, not been on Suboxone. But definitely that period of abstinence from opiates, that's where it becomes really, really crucial because um, uh, a person can say, well, geez, I haven't used for a month. I'm going to go back and use half the amount that I used last time, not realizing that it took them years to get up to that half of that amount. And so overdose becomes, uh, uh, becomes very possible. And that's that's what we worry about the most. So that's where the counseling component. Yeah, come yeah, in? yeah. It, to be able to talk to your counselor about, you know, hey, look, I'm I'm doing pretty good on the Suboxone, but hey, you know, I I keep getting these uh, these text messages from my friend who's got some heroin. You know, we start looking. You know, I think the obvious thing there is to you know, time to ditch that cell phone and get a new number. Um, you know, to start actually working the nuts and bolts programs that start to remove them from that element that's still using. Does that help with your question? I think she's she, she's off the air. Okay, so we have another caller, um, and this is Gray from Hancock. Hi. Hi, Gray. Hi, Gray. Hi. Great show. Um, I really like your guest's uh, attitude, humane attitude towards, and rational attitude towards the problem. And um, My father was a physician. Uh, he died a couple years ago. But uh, number, oh, maybe 10 years ago, he said as the the feds were getting interested in Washington County, that basically there was one doctor in Machias who would give you a prescription for a few books. And that, he basically started the whole thing in Washington County. And um, maybe this is outside of your sphere, therapeutic sphere of, of expertise, but is there anything that could be done to help prevent doctors from over prescribing for you know corruptly and and or nipping the problem in the bud after that might happen if you can't prevent the doctors you know make all doctors honest and Great, great, I just wanted great to question. Like that. Thanks Kip, a lot. Thank you. Can you respond to that? Oh, thank you so much for that question. 
yeah, there, uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I hope my doctor's listening, and, and I hope he, next time he gives me a shot, he doesn't stick it in extra deep when I say this. <laughs> but here's the thing: I do believe that if I am licensed to prescribe opiate medication. That is an intervention. And so a person comes to my office, let's say I got a gym teacher who broke her leg and she comes in my office and she has painful surgery and I start um, providing her with uh, Percocet. And so she takes this Percocet for a period of two months and all of a sudden one day she calls him for the prescription and I'm, as a doctor, realize, wait a minute, she's not in pain anymore. At this point, the doctors generally become uncomfortable. They say, I'm no longer going to prescribe for you. They're going to give you acetaminophen or something like that. And that's where the conversation stops. Now this person either has to A, go through a god-awful withdrawal with, with really no help. Uh, B, they're going to start buying that drug on the street. Uh, and because, again, opiate dependence is going to be served one way or the other. It's going to be served by being sick for weeks. It's going to be served by, by um, getting replacement medications. My belief is if the doctors want to become part of the solution here, if 20% of people are becoming dependent and later possibly addicted just simply by intervening by their doctor, the, the intervention cannot stop with the doctor throwing his hands up. I would like to see an ethical practice where a doctor sits down with, it, with his client before they prescribe medication number one and says to them, look, I'm about to prescribe something to you that's very powerful. I'm about to prescribe something to you that you may become dependent on. And if we're not careful, you could even become addicted on it and it could destroy your life and the lives of the people who love you. So what we're going to do is have a proactive plan about what we're going to do if you become dependent on these medications. And um, that proactive plan will be, I will, if we start at zero and we end up with you at a 10 being dependent, I'm going to hold on to you as a patient until you're back to zero. Now, if that zero means I've helped you get counseling, I've helped you get treatment, I've, I have a pathway to help you with that, that's one way. Another way is that these doctors could also be licensed to prescribe Suboxone, Bunivale, Methadone, any of these, any of these um, drugs that help people with withdrawal. Because I think that if doctors would do that, if they would take that responsibility, if their intervention results in their patient being dependent on an opiate medication, I believe that the Hippocratic Oath says, you know, first of all, do no harm. So maybe at that point, what the doctor can do is begin prescribing this person Suboxone, get them to a person who can help them taper and hold on to that patient and treat them with love, respect and dignity. And not, not now suddenly, you know, three weeks ago, you were, you were my lovely patient, Julie. Now, you, now you're an addict. No, we don't go there. We treat people with love and respect and say, this is a medical problem. My intervention has helped create this medical problem, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you in, 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 in my care until this problem has been solved, whether that's to put you on replacement medications or to just simply uh, help you taper down. If you have a question, please feel free to call in 1-866-625-9378, 1-866-625-WERU. You're listening to A Healthy Options Special. This is Cynthia Swan. We're talking about opiate dependence. My guest is Kip Young, uh, licensed drug and alcohol counselor. Kip's office number is 207 664 
1500 and his email is atlanticsac at yahoo.com with a website atlanticsac.net and you're listening to uh, WERU 99.9 FM in Bangor 89.9 in Blue Hill and streaming WERU.org I think we have uh, another caller here so we'll um, get them squared on I, I know I kind of what about uh, suboxone can suboxone be prescribed for pain in general as soon as, I, or is it not effective that it, way it, it can be helpful with that um, generally I don't think it's generally thought of that way but um, certainly you know opium is opium and if you're taking buprenorphine, which is a long-acting opiate, there is some pain control. Um, the only the, one of the the caveats, though, the withdrawal from suboxone is much worse than the withdrawal from heroin. The withdrawal from suboxone yes. is worse than heroin. Yes. Okay. It is. We have another caller, and this is Patricia from Waldo. Um, Patricia, your question. Patricia. You there? No, this is this is Mary. Mary, I'm sorry. Mary, oh. uh, welcome. Hi, this is Mary from Waldo. Thank you. Okay, Mary, Thanks. your question? Um, the question is, could you spell out the uh, three drugs, Suboxone, and then I didn't catch the second one? Sure. Uh, the first one is Suboxone. Um, the next one is called Bunavale, uh, B-U-N-A-V-I-L. And what Bunavale is, it's, it's similar to Suboxone, but see, Suboxone, you put it under your tongue, and you're supposed to keep it under your tongue. It tastes really awful, and a lot of my clients will say it takes everything they, they have just not to throw up when they put it in their mouth. And so although some of the drug does get into, into the uh, capillaries underneath the tongue and get into your system, every time you swallow your saliva, it makes that medication only about 20% effective. Great medication, but it, it's, it's, you know, it's got some drawbacks. Bunavale is the same thing as Suboxone. It's, it's half buprenorphine, half naltroxone, but it's a little square that you put on the inside of your cheek. It sticks to your cheek instantly, and all the medication gets taken in uh, through, through the, the wall of the cheek. And so a, f- a 6.5 milligram strip of Bunavale is equivalent to a 12 milligram, st- uh, milligram strip of Suboxone. It's, uh, I, I've only started having clients that are, that are on that. They do say they're very comfortable. It tastes good, and they feel a lot more comfortable with that. Um, there's a couple other drugs. One's called uh, naltroxone. Um, Naltroxone is half of what's in Bunavale and it's half of what's in Suboxone. It's the blocker. You want to spell that? Yeah. Um, it's uh, N-A-L-T-R-E-X-O-N-E. And that comes in a pill form. But here's, here's the thing you've got to be careful of. If you have any opiates in your system at all and you take a, a naltroxone pill, you are going to go into instant withdrawal. Now, naltroxone is for someone who's gotten off of opiates, and maybe they're still having cravings. Maybe they're, they're, they're really, really struggling with the craving part, but they continue to want to be abstinent. If they take a naltroxone tablet every day, what that will do, it will reduce the cravings to a degree, and um, it will also make it so that if you use an opiate, you can't get high that day. Now, you, you can override that and overdose. Now, Vivitrol, um, let's see, where do I have that? It's uh, Vivitrol, V-I-V-I-T-R-O-L. That's just naltroxone in an injection. You inject somebody with naltroxone for 30 days, you can't get high on opiates. So what I like to do with folks is um, if you've either simply gotten off of opiates 
or um, without any any medical help, or you've been tapered off Suboxone, once you're totally off those drugs, get, get a uh, naltroxone injection, and for 30 days, you can't get high. And I would suggest getting that injection every 30 days as long as you need to. But it's expensive without insurance. It's about $1,300. $1,300? Crazy, crazy stuff. So people, all right. Well, I hope that answered your question, Mary. Yes, I just, okay. Go, go ahead. You have a part two? I wanted two? to know how difficult. I, I have a friend who's 27. I have an opiate dependency. Classic textbook case of what you just described. Mangled a foot and was put on um, OxyContin and uh, and now is addicted to it for his sleep. He cannot sleep for the last six months. So how hard is it to get an appointment? How long? A wait is it to get an appointment? Well, if you if you try to get on medication assisted treatment in Ellsworth, you know um, that's that's almost impossible. There is a new place that's just opened up, and I wished I'd written down the phone number. It's in Manchester, Maine, near Augusta. It's Doctor okay. Jorgensen. It's at the main recovery center, and they are taking on three hundred new patients uh, to uh, prescribe uh, Bunivale, Suboxone, and they do this on a maintenance. Uh, schedule. A lot of people won't do maintenance. They just do short term, but they do maintenance, which means you'll be on the drug as long as you need to be. They uh, they don't take main care, but they take all other insurances. Um, they're taking 300 people. I've, I feel like I've sent 300 people there already, but I believe they're still taking new, new clients. And uh, Mary, I think we're going to have to end it there. We only have a few, uh, maybe a moment remaining. And I want to give uh, Kip Young's information again. If you want to contact Kim uh, after the show, you can, Kip, you can get a hold of him at um, phone number 207 664 one five zero zero is his office. His website is atlanticsac.net and his email atlanticsac at yahoo.com. Kip, and just the, literally as the music is playing, I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering the show. This is Cynthia Swan. I want to give you the parting word. What, what would you say to the community? What would you say for users? Is there anything left unsaid that you'd like to put out there? Yeah, what I'd like to say is I love my job. I love working with these people, and in a lot of ways, they've been abused, they've been uh, they've been labeled, they've been shunned, they've been shamed, and people say that the walk across my parking lot sometimes was the, was the longest walk of their life. But when they come in my office and I offer them a glass of water, um, and we sit down and we talk, I treat them with love and respect and dignity. I don't call them any names; I just call them by their name. And I have found that the best thing that you can do to help someone with opioid dependence is use science and kindness. Science is the medicine medications available to help people and kindness is just simply not treating them like a drug addict treat them like a human being because they're somebody's sister somebody's mother there's not us and them there's only us thank you very much thanks for listening support for WERU comes from 